So for those of you who uh, don't know me, my name is Jonathan Cruz, and I'm a student at Westminster, as Pastor Brown said. And my wife and I, my wife Carrie and I, are uh, relatively new here. I think we've been here since October. And uh, so many of you have probably seen me some weeks. I'm up at the piano, so you know me, but I probably don't know you yet. So please uh, come up and introduce yourself. Uh, so we're, we're talking about hymnody, what makes a good hymn good? And um, what makes me qualified to teach this class you might be thinking, because I play the piano, it's because I'm this expert musician. I'm a trained classical musician. That's not the case. In fact, besides um, being able to play some hymns, I can't do much else at the piano. Um, but as Pastor Brown said, it's because my experience is uh, that I've written some hymns. The past four years, I've been writing hymns uh, with Paul Jones, who's the former music director at historic 10th Presbyterian Church. So he and I have written uh, some 10 hymns together that have been published, and uh, we've had the pleasure of hearing them sung at churches across the country. I do have to make one correction, though, to what Pastor Brown said. He said that um, some of my hymns will be in the new URC OPC Psalter Hymnal Project. And although I wish I did not have to correct this, the truth is that I don't know if they'll be in the URC uh, hymnal. Uh, They have been proposed. So that was about two years ago they asked for some of my hymns, or a year and a half ago they asked for some of my hymns. Then maybe six months ago I heard that in the first draft a few of them have made it. But that's just the first draft. There will be many drafts, and they expect things to change. So really, I will know if they're in the new hymnal when the new hymnal is published. Um, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, just the Father. So, um, But I want to let you know that about my background is uh, in writing hymn texts. I'm a, not a composer, I'm an author. And so that's kind of the perspective I'll be bringing to this class about hymnody, what makes a good hymn good, what can you look for in a hymn to know if it's up to snuff, we could say. Um, Let me just say by way of introduction still what the scope of this class is. The scope of this class is not to argue hymnody or classical traditional worship over and against um, pop uh, contemporary worship styles. That's not for this class, maybe some other class. Um, It's also not to argue the place of hymnody in Reformed worship over, let's say, exclusive psalmody. That's a good question to ask too, but not this class. Um, and I'm going to stand by the church's statement, which Mark has prepared. Psalms have a principal place of worship. Right. And then hymns, which are approved, I believe, by? Approved by the consistory. So that's basically what we're going to go through. I want us all to come into, yeah, uh, with that in mind, we're all coming into this class uh, with that in mind. Um, so Psalms, first place, hymns approved by consistory. Now with that in mind, we're going to look at hymnody exclusively, though. Um, and I want this class uh, to focus on helping you understand what will make a good hymn good. This is probably stuff a lot of you just know inherently, but maybe you don't know that you know it. You can kind of feel it. Um, you'll, now you'll get to learn what the consistory is looking for when they examine hymns. And I'm sure many of you are not, uh, Sunday's not the only day you're going to be singing hymns, right? You maybe, or, or maybe you're at a different church, and this will help you know if you're This is a hymn you should be singing, or I hope in your homes, as part of your personal worship, your family worship, you're singing hymns. This will all help you kind of see which hymns should be sung, which uh, hymns should be given attention to. So this will be a fun class. I think you'll enjoy it. We have a lot of stuff to talk about and only three weeks to do it, but that's how we're going to start, is what makes a good hymn good, and then later, hopefully, I'll be introducing you to some new hymns that have been written in the last 10 years that will be in the new hymnal, possibly, um, by Reformed pastors, Reformed theologians, uh, Reformed lay people. 
maybe as a bit of a teaser for next week. I already had this planned, and it worked out perfectly with what Pastor Brown was saying. That quote of James Boyce, do you remember, where he was talking about grace is not to help us avoid trials, it's to help us get through trials. I had already planned for us to learn next week the hymn that James Boyce himself wrote during his uh, trial and ordeal with cancer, and this uh, hymn that was sung at his deathbed multiple times and also at his funeral. So you'll get to um, see that, that, that quote kind of put into poetry next week. So come back next week. Um, so yeah, I've told you what this, this class isn't, but if you want to address some other things, because it's such a big topic, I'll suggest some further reading for you. Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, T. David Gordon, maybe some of you have already read this, great book, uh, very accessible. With Reverence and Awe, this is about reformed worship in general by D.G. Hart and um, John Meather. And then finally, Singing and Making Music, and this is by Paul Jones, who I've collaborated with, and uh, I've kind of summed up these guys today. So this isn't really new stuff. <laughs> I'm just mimicking smarter people. Okay, so let's get into it. Obviously, there are two elements to every hymn. What are the two elements to every hymn? Words, words and words and music. Text and tune, we can say. Text and tune. Which, which is more important? John, you said text. Are you going to defend that? Or did you just offer it? Now I have to defend it. You just, someone else said it, too. <laughs> Anybody want to venture why a text is more important than the tune? If that's the case. Because it's the gospel. Anyone else want to add to that? That's what goes into your mind. Okay. How about this? They're equally important. Do you agree with that? Someone says yes. They're equally important, but here's the caveat. The tune does take a subservient role, a role when compared with the text. By that I mean, so in this way, you're right over here who said text. A text is not written to accentuate a beautiful melody. A melody is written to draw out the truth of a text. Okay? Um, so the text is the content of our worship uh, when we sing. So Martin Luther once said, in congregational song, worshipers give voice to their beliefs and theology. They give voice to their beliefs and theology. You can't do that by whistling. You can't do that by humming a tune. You need to have words, right? Uh, you could have a beautiful tune, but the words could be unorthodox and even heretical, which happens a lot more than we probably realize when we sing those songs. Um, so without a good text, the tune doesn't matter at all. So in that sense, we could say the text is a little more important, but once you have a good text, once you have an orthodox uh, text that's uh, rich with Reformed theology, you can see how the tune plays just as uh, equal of a role in making a good hymn good. Once you have a good text, the tune is equally as important because it could kind of make or break that text. You can have an awful tune and it's going to destroy whatever that author wrote, even if, it's, um, even if it's a good text by itself. So we could say, this is an analogy I like to use, um, the... The tune is like the Holy Spirit in that its job is to draw attention away from itself and shine the spotlight on to Christ, which in this analogy would be the text. So are we all together with that? Text and tune, equally important, but the tune does, in a sense, play a subservient role. So we have text and tune. Let's look first at uh, text. And for both of these, I meant to say, to help us guide our discussion today, what makes a good hymn good, 
we're looking at what makes a hymn ex acceptable and accessible. Acceptable and accessible. Um, acceptable to who? Acceptable to God in our worship. And then accept accessible to who? Us. That means, uh, can we sing it? Can we uh, remember it, right? So we're kind of using this as a, um, a template. We're gonna, everything we look at, it's either going to go under one of these categories. Is it accept, does this make it acceptable to God? Does it make it accessible for us? So first, we have uh, the text. And uh, text then has, text and tune both have kind of two categories also, the content and the form. What it says and how it says it. So for the content, I hope this is abundantly obvious, uh, but good reformed hymnody must be scripturally saturated. So that's the first thing under text, scripturally saturated. Is that obvious to everyone? I would hope so. You know, the black marker went out. I'm sorry. I know, I tried that one first. It says scripturally saturated up here. So it's, that means it's drawn from scripture. Um, every, uh, every hymn and every verse and every hymn, you bring markers to church? <laughs> I would love to see your notebook. Thank you. Let's see. <laughs> okay, I will, I'm going to switch here, so pardon me for a second. Uh, so this is under text. For, right? <laughs> okay, so drawn from scripture, that's the first one. When you're looking at a hymn, every verse, <laughs> that's funny, uh, every verse should be able to, uh, or should point to scripture. Now, that doesn't mean every single line of a hymn needs to be a direct lift from a passage, but you should be able to defend everything you're singing from a verse or from uh, an idea that is drawn from scripture. So, you know, the Trinity, for example, you maybe can point to one verse, but we know that that doesn't mean that God is not triune. Uh, so you need to be able to defend your uh, hymnody biblically. I've heard it said many times that the, one of the best devotional books you could have is a good hymnal, and it's because good hymnals point us to Scripture. They, they draw our attention to God's Word. Um, you may have heard it said that when we pray, we are to pray God's words back to Him. It's the same thing when we sing. Uh, we should be singing God's words back to Him. That's why the Psalms are so important for worship, uh, but we can do that in hymn singing also. It's a way of showing that we are in, in uh, agreement with God's will, and that it's a way to ensure that his word abides in us, as Jesus says. So this will guard us from so many songs that focus on, what, feelings, emotions, um, experience, maybe. And it will ground our worship in the truth of God's word. Uh, take as an example, I have a, a hymn prepared for you, Crown Him With Many Crowns. We sang it last week. It's not in your hymnal, but we sang it last week, and it's one of my favorites, so I thought I'd use this one. Uh, I'm going to read for you each line of verse 1 and, and show you how it's drawn. The whole verse 1 is drawn from Revelation. So everybody, does it, people know this hymn, Crown Him With Many Crowns? Okay. So crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Okay, so here we go. Crown him with many crowns. Revelation 19, 12. Simple enough. On his head are many crowns. <laughs> there you go. That's how the whole, verse, uh, the whole hymn starts. The Lamb upon his throne, Revelation 7, 17. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. And then it goes on. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. 
Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for me. Revelation 5, 11. Then I heard around the throne and around the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands on thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Right? Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for me. There you go. Um, and then the end of that verse, it says, Hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. There's tons of verses you could pick for this one. How about Revelation 19:16? On his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, the matchless king. Another example from that hymn that I love is in verse 2. Do you remember the part where it talks about um, no angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. Straight from Isaiah 6, you know, when Isaiah is transported into the throne room and he sees Christ uh, high and lifted up and it says the seraphim there, uh, the seraphim there are covering their faces, right? They can't, they can't bear the sight of Christ's holiness. That's uh, what... Um, Matthew Bridges, who wrote that hymn in 1851, is drawing our attention to. So we see that a good hymn is drenched in Scripture. And when hymns uh, are written as poetic expressions of Scripture, not only are we spared from heterodoxy, you know, unorthodox teachings, but the hymn will tend to be, here's the next thing, God-focused and Christ-centered. That's my little symbol for God. God-focused. Christ-centered, as opposed to me-focused and me-centered, which incidentally is a problem with a lot of contemporary songs, but we're not getting into that. And also some of Ira Sankey's hymns. But, um, so the emphasis, as we see in the Psalms and also good hymns, is on the work of God and not on our own feelings or experience. There's this one theologian I came across, uh, his name is... I think he pronounced Horton, Michael Horton. This is what he says. The biblical text never gives us the subjective, that is, our experience or our offering of praise, apart from the objective, God's saving work in Christ. He says it never concentrates on what we are to do before establishing what God has already done. So to that end, good hymns focus on God. So we can see they focus on God in, specifically in his works of creation and redemption, and also uh, on his attributes, his love, his mercy, his wrath, his justice, his faithfulness, etc. Now, does that mean hymns can't be personal? Does that mean hymns can't be experiential? What do you think? Yes, no? Anyone brave enough to shout? Can hymns be experiential? Yes. yes. The most famous Reformed hymn, and incidentally, the most famous hymn in the world, is a hymn of someone's personal experience. What hymn's that? Amazing Grace. I, some people said it. That's good. Amazing Grace, right? That's John Newton's conversion experience. He's on that ship the day after that storm, and he, uh, uh, you, know, you know his whole story about being involved with the slave trade and, and being in slavery himself. The day after that storm, he wrote the first verse of that hymn, which he didn't complete for another 30 years, I think, or something, 20 years. Um, but that's a, uh, that's a hymn about personal Experience, but why is that him? Okay, it's because um, his experience is applicable to that of the general body of believers. We can all say that we are wretches saved by grace, right? So it's okay to have a hymn that is experiential or that's personal as long as it um, 
is broad enough to, uh, that other people can lift their voices in unison and say you know, yes and amen to that hymn. Um, lastly, in, forms of, in, terms, sorry, in terms of content, we're under content right now, and this is the hardest, good hymnody has the challenge of expressing profound doctrines without being too intellectual uh, for the average congregant, but at the same time without being trite. This is a challenge. Um, Terry Johnson, who's a Presbyterian minister and big on worship, says that good, I'm just going to sit down and write, I think, good hymns should be theologically mature. So you can have it based in scripture, you can have it be God-focused, but it could still be trite. So they must be theologically mature. This is certainly um, a challenge. You could have truthful words that don't quite reflect your spiritual maturity. See, it is true for me uh, that uh, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. That's true. I think it's true for all of us. But you know what else is true? <laughs> this is also true. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Same ideas right there. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. But there's a lack of maturity. That's why it's a good kid song. But we should not be singing hymns that are theologically immature. Paul Jones says in his books that hymn singing, this is a great quote, hymn singing is a forum in which a broad public encounters Christian doctrine. A broad public. Therefore, the poetry should permit the least, the least educated uh, person to comprehend, though not necessarily at first glance, and yet also give the discerning mind something to ponder. Um, and here, let me just give a, a suggestion. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're th- you have some objections to hymns, and it's that the language is foreign to you. Maybe it's archaic to you. You don't understand it. And, or maybe you could understand it, except now you have to sing it to a tune you don't recognize or you don't really like. So now it's hard for you to really be seeing it meaningfully because you're focused too much on the words and you can't get the melody or you focus too much on the melody and you're missing the words. We probably all have had that experience one time or another. Let me just make a suggestion. At our church, you know, Pastor Brown, he posts the, the bulletin information two days before, usually, on, on the website, on Facebook. Uh, read the hymns beforehand. Read the psalms beforehand um, and, and get, a, a, get a grasp on what we're singing about, what we will be singing about on Sunday. If you don't have the internet, then when you come in, you grab the bulletin, you sit down, just come two minutes earlier, and you can read through um, the psalms and the hymns and kind of uh, help prepare yourself for singing. That way you'll understand what you're singing when you're singing it, and your worship will be more meaningful. So that's just a practical um, way to help you with that. And if you don't have one of these at home, get one. Don't steal one. That's That's a commandment violation. Don't steal one. So there we have content. Scripturally saturated, God-focused, Christ-centered, theologically mature. It's a high order for writing a good hymn, but that's what we need to be looking for. Now, once we have what the text says, we need to look at form, how the text says it. Um, Paul Jones suggests that hymns shouldn't be more than six verses, generally speaking, and they should be between four to six lines per verse. These are just um, suggestions. Uh, He does say, you know, there are hymns that are more than six verses, but most hymnals will trim them down to four anyway. And if you look in our hymnal, that is the case almost for every hymn, down to four verses or, um, or, or five. So um, that's one thing. They should be short to an extent. There should be rhyming. Not that's not a hard and fast rule, but rhyming does help with memorization. It's a hallmark of English poetry, so that will assist us in our singing. 
Uh, the key, though, is to make sure the rhyme is serving the message of the text and not the other way around. You can tell some bad hymns, bad poetry, when they're just trying to get to that last word in the line, when they know they had love up here and they need to get to above down here, they don't care how they get there. If it makes no sense, that's fine. That's, that's not what you should do in good hymnody, right? The rhyme will, draw, uh, will strengthen the message of the text. Here's the most important thing for form is the, the structure of a hymn. Uh, this is what will help it make, it make it most accessible for us. Uh, there's a few things you can do as far as structure. One is that a hymn should not be a random collection of true and orthodox verses, uh, but they should all, every verse of a hymn should be building to one idea. They should have a unifying theme. This is the same for writing a good sermon or, or listening to a good sermon. The three points should be connected, right, if there's three points. Uh, not just three random thoughts the preacher wants to uh, get off his chest that day. They should all be uh, driving towards the same goal uh, and promoting the same idea. One way to do this is for him to tell a story, so to speak. Uh, that's where each verse leads logically and conceptually into the next verse. A famous example of this is a mighty fortress. If you were to take out any verses in a mighty fortress, that hymn makes no sense. Uh, if you stop at the end of the first verse where it's talking about Satan and on earth is not his equal, that's the most depressing hymn in the world. You need to sing the rest of that hymn. Or if you think of the third verse, which it ends saying, one little word will fell him, what's the beginning of the fourth verse right after that? What's the first line? That word above all earthly powers, it leads you right into the next verse. That's a beautiful way for uh, a hymn to be accessible for us conceptually. It makes it gives the a hymn direction and progression, so as we're singing it, we know where we're going. Another way to structure it helpfully for, or to structure a hymn helpfully for the singer is to have parallelisms within a verse. There's a lot of ways you can do parallelisms, but this will help make a hymn stick. Once again, this is like a sermon, where you'll notice with Pastor Brown, a lot of his points have parallelisms. So today we had the Rage of Saul, the refuge of God, and the third one, so, what's that? Someone? Nobody has their notes? Response, something like that? There we go. There we go. Yeah, I'm not as holy as some of you guys out there. Um, but I do remember the one from last week. It was the uh, submission of Jonathan, the suspicion of Saul, and the protection of David. I can remember that not because I studied over it all week, I'm sorry to admit, but because having parallelisms like that makes it easier for us to understand what's going on in a sermon. It's the same way for a hymn. Take your hymnals, Psalter hymnals, turn to page... I know I'm making you do work, I'm sorry. We're going to sing in a little bit too, so don't get too comfortable. Turn to page 462. And I got to write these down. Uh, The form we have. So a hymn needs to be conceptual. And we're talking about parallelisms right now. Okay, so where's the, where's the um, parallelisms in this one? This is a very easy one, 462. Take my, take my, take my, take my. Right, it's, uh, that's exactly right. You're going to see this in almost, I would say, the majority of your favorite hymns. How about 464? We'll just flip through here and see how many hymns do this. Christian, dost thou see them? Christian, dost thou feel them? Christian, dost thou hear them? You see the parallelisms there? How about 470? Who can find the, the, the kind of poetic parallelisms in 
hymn 470. Each verse starts differently. They all end the same. Abide with me. They're all driving to this idea of uh, God abiding with us. Um, God be with, with you till we meet again. The sad, sad song does it there. How about 475? Another year is dawning. Another year of mercies. Another year of service. Um, okay, here's an example of a hymn that executes this poorly. 481. 481. Oh, perfect love. Next line. Oh, perfect life. What are you expecting in verse 3? Oh, perfect. And even something with an L, probably, right? But we get great then the joy. Great then the joy. I don't Grant. Yeah, there we go. Grant them. See, that's the issue with this. Now, that doesn't mean every hymn needs to have a parallelism. But when you seem like you're setting it up, it's, gonna ser- it's, it's a disservice to the singer when you depart from that uh, structure. So th- those are some examples. You're going to find these all throughout. Rock of Ages is another example. Um, the first line of first one, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. The rest of the hymn has no parallelism until the last line of verse four, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. It's a bookend. These are just ways uh, you can pick out good poetry in, in our hymnody and say, you know, this is a, this is a good hymn. Uh, okay, so we have the text. Uh, or, yeah, we have the text. So we, uh, as far as content, scripturally saturated, God-focused, Christ-centered, theologically mature, which is, can be difficult. And then as far as form, it should all conceptually be united, and uh, parallelisms is a way that helps. We also talked about things like rhyming. But that's good enough for now. Maybe we'll talk about this next week, too. Let's move on to tune. Once you have a worthy text, the next step is to set it with a worthy tune. Um, So as we've said already, the job of a tune is to draw out the meaning of the text. To do that, it first needs to be singable. It needs to be singable. So take into consideration the range of, uh, of a hymn tune. You know, church, uh, or church is, is, a, is a combination of people are at different places in their spiritual journey, right? There are different stages in their sanctification, but we all come together as one body. It's the same thing uh, uh, if you think of singing. <laughs> there's people here who used to be on Broadway, and then there's people who only sing in the shower. So uh, we need our hymns to be accessible to every different level of singer's ability. Can you guys hum or say this on, uh, let's say, fa, fa, fa. Yeah, you got it? That's uh, about the lowest you should have a hymn go. That's A below middle C. How about this? I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> that was just for you guys. It's not being recorded, is it? Uh, that's about the highest. We, today we had a hymn, uh, the, the second hymn went up that high, and a lot of us couldn't quite make it, right? You, maybe you felt that. Um, most hymns used to go up to, and every hymnal that comes out starts going down. So the Trinity hymnal came out after the Psalter hymnal, and most of the same hymn tunes that are in the Psalter hymnal, they've brought them down about two keys, because we're getting uh, worse at singing in our culture. So the range needs to be accessible. You don't want to have big leaps in a melody. That's hard for people to do. So, you know, um, I know we all love that hymn, but that has an octave leap that's hard for some people to sing. Um, So the range needs to be accessible. Let's also talk about melodic repetition and melodic cycles. These are things that aid in memorability. I I hope you're not starting to, I'm not losing you because I'm using kind of musical terms because... Trust me, I'm not a musician. But 
this is simple enough. It's hard to learn a new tune if the, uh, the melody keeps changing, if every element of the melody is, is unique. However, if some elements of the melody repeat throughout, it makes it more memorable, it makes it more accessible. And this can be done, this repetition can be done without it being repetitive, without it being banal or vapid, which can be another problem in some newer music, which is kind of unnecessarily repetitive. You have some of your greatest hymns are going to repeat their melody quite a lot. Who loves Come Thou Fount? Wow, people who did not raise your hand. I'm, I'm taking names. <laughs> Come Thou Fount. Uh, that is the, the, the first line of that hymn, uh, the, 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 of the tune. It repeats three times in the hymn. Three out of the four lines, that exact same melody. But that hymn doesn't seem repetitive. That hymn doesn't seem boring because it's a beautiful melody and it's worth repeating and it has nuance to it. So repetition is something uh, that certainly helps. Another, uh, another way you can uh, um, make a, a melody stick is by having mel uh, melodic cycles. And today, our second hymn, it worked out perfectly, is the tune Manoah. This doesn't have repetition, but it has cycles. Here, see, tell me if you can hear it. Right, the melody didn't repeat, but it took the same idea and it, it took it up a, a couple steps, right? And you have an intuition, you hear it coming. You hear it in the second half, too. Oh, that was my fault. Right? You, bum, ba, bum, ba. you know what the next one's going to be. Bum, ba. That's, a, that's a melodic cycle. And it's just something that's kind of, I don't know, natural to us. We can feel it. We can hear it coming. And it helps us sing a tune. It helps us learn a new tune. So that, that all has to do with accessibility and making a good hymn a good hymn. Um, uh, tunes must also match the scansion of a text. Do you guys know what scansion is? Scansion is the emphasis. Of, uh, of poems. You, you hear it clearly in poems like Amazing Grace, you know. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. You hear where you emphasize the words. Not amazing grace, how sweet. That, that just sounds awful, right? A lot of people don't know that melodies also have emphasis. Um, so you could have a great tune and uh, it goes to the same number of syllables as a hymn but it emphasizes the off-syllables, the unaccented ones. And what you get is something that's really awkward. So, for instance, here would be, because sometimes if we want to put a hymn to a different tune that maybe the congregation knows, a pastor will look and say, okay, this one has seven syllables, six syllables, seven syllables, six syllables. Find another tune that matches that, and you just put it to it. But that doesn't always work. If we take Come Thou Fount, which we, we all know and love, and put it to this tune, you guys know this tune? I think we have a song that goes to da, 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 da. Okay, this is what it would be if you put Come Thou Fount to it. Same number of syllables. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. It's awkward, right? Very awkward. And so awkward that I'll stop right there. Um, so, uh, so a tune needs to match the scansion of a text, the emphasis of a text. Now, perhaps most importantly, and this is where we'll end, we have five minutes left, we'll get you guys singing. Uh, most importantly, a tune should be composed 
to match the mood, the emotion, the affect of a text. Somber texts should be put to somber tunes and so forth. Now, here some people will protest because isn't this an area of uh, relativity, right? This is uh, um, subjectivity, I guess I should say, that it's all relative to the hearer. Who's to say what emotion or what feeling one person will get when they hear a tune as opposed to another person? It might sound happy and joyful to one person, to another person it sounds deep, dark, and depressing. But that is not the case. Music, inherent in and of itself, conveys an objective message. Um, I could probably prove this simply by saying that there's a reason armies don't march to war to lullabies, and there's a reason babies don't fall asleep to John Philip Sousa music, right? Because music inherent of itself is conveying a message. Um, so, I, yeah, I could say that, but I'm going to show you instead. We'll sing a little bit now. Turn to 402. 402. Glorious things of thee are spoken. You can remain seated, it's okay. And we're going to sing this to the tune that it has in the hymnal. I'll, I'll give you the first line, then we're going to sing together. Okay, everybody's singing. Okay, so you see how that tune is, is perfectly wedded to that text. It's, it's uh, triumphant, it's militant even. We're talking about the city of God. And, and maybe even the third verse, you hear that it's almost hammering in this idea of the rock of ages. Or, uh, wrong key. Right, and it's, it's, uh, it's almost like uh, winding up to catapult us into that next line, you know. Um, what can shake my sure repose? It's, it's a beautiful uh, tune for that text. But it could go, uh, with the right emphasis and all that stuff, it could go to a few other tunes, but we'll see they give us a, a different meaning. So just follow along. I'm going to give you an intro here to a tune you all should know and love very well, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and we'll sing the first verse again. Okay, glorious things. Perhaps a bit schmaltzy. Can I use that word? Schmaltzy? Um, doesn't really convey that, that, that feeling we got from the first one, right? And there's, uh, there's an example. Yeah, the tune fits, but it ruins the text. And you, you, don't, you don't get the meaning, the feeling of the text. How about one more example? 
uh, page 355, and then we'll, we'll close here. 355, a great passion hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. You guys know this one? With a Bach tune, beautiful Bach tune. Right, okay, and it's set perfectly to this idea of Christ, uh, all the pains that he endured on the cross, his death for us. How about to this tune? Lead on, O King Eternal, everyone. O sacred head. You wouldn't sing it. That's right. Very good, Jonathan. You wouldn't sing it. Because you see how it, it, it destroys the affect, the emotion of the text. And we see how that's very important when, when combining uh, a tune to a text. You need to be thinking about that. That's the hardest thing. That's the most important thing. A tune needs to draw out the, the emotion and the affect of a, a particular text. And next week, we're running out of time. or we have run out of time. But next week, we're going to look actually at... It's more than just, let's find a good text, and let's find a good tune, and let's put them together. That works sometimes, and it's worked a lot of times, actually. But we're going to look at tunes that have writ been written specifically for their text, where the composer is thinking about the words they say, and how can music really convey the message of, this, of what this author has written in a text. We're going to look at one of the most famous Reformed hymns of all time, and I'll give you some insight into things like the uh, key he picked, the time signature he picked. Um, why did he start on this note and not this note? And you'll see how, once you learn it, it's going to make your, uh, I think, your worship when we sing this song um, more meaningful and, and uh, enjoyable, even to you, as you understand what goes into making a good hymn good. But that will be next week. So how about I pray and we'll dismiss. Father God, we thank you so much that you have um, allowed us to, and not only allowed us, but you call us to raise our voices in praise to you. And that Lord, we know this is not something we should take lightly, uh, but this is a serious endeavor. And we, we really, Lord, truly want our worship to be pleasing in your sight. We want to offer it to you with reverence and awe. So we ask um, that we would be more thoughtful about that and that in the next few weeks we would um, learn what it really means uh, to worship you, Lord, uh, with all our hearts and all our minds. Uh, we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.